As a good, uh, as my favorite uh, pastor to listen to uh, on, on, on a podcast is Matt Chandler of the uh, Village Church in Denton, Texas, says over and over again as he opens up his sermons, are you ready to do some work? <laughs> because this morning, we've got to do some work. It's going, to take, uh, it's going to take our brains to really wrap ourselves around this passage in order for us to understand what God is saying to us. Now, before we read the passage, let's go ahead and give some scriptural introductions so we have a concept of, or a framework through which to read this. Now, you'll have this in the, in the notes that are at the front of your notebook. Um, there's four uh, themes, four, four uh, I like to call them frameworks, that help us understand Genesis. And particularly in this passage, there's three of them that I think are really helpful. First of all, remember that Genesis is divided up into ten Toledots, uh, Toledots, excuse me, ten Toledots. Those are, are ten sections that begin with, these are the generations of, or here's is the family history of. So, so there we see it, uh, chapter 5, verse 1, these are the generations of, the book of the generations. So what Moses is trying to do is make sure that we understand the redemptive work of God and we're understanding it's coming through families, and he's dividing it up so that we would understand this progression that's going on. Okay, so that's Moses' intention. That's one framework. Another framework that we see in Genesis is coming from Genesis 3 is that there's a seed of the woman, and there is a seed of the serpent. Now, that doesn't mean that, that those men and women um, who are now populating the earth, who are rebelling against God, that they are you know, actually somehow uh, connected in, in some demonic, angelic way um, with Satan. What it's saying, though, is that there is, a, um, there is a line of people, there is a line of generations whose, whose true source is the evil and rebellion of Satan. And there is, a, there is a line, there is a legacy whose true source is the seed of the woman, is the seed of the promise, um, meaning... Uh, that they obey God, that they are going to worship God, that they proclaim God. So you have that framework. You also have the big overarching framework of the entire Bible, and it's really clear in Genesis, and we've got to keep this in our head. What God wants us to see is creation, fall, redemption. Sin, judgment, restoration. He wants us to see that. So over and over again, we're being reminded that God is the creator, and that and that. Fallen man, sinful fallen man, is, is making a mess of things, but that God is also the Redeemer in response to that. And so when you look at the book of Genesis, and especially chapters like this, you have to ask yourself, what is it that Moses, and ultimately, what is it that God wants us to know? And ultimately, what God wants us to know is that we are broken sinners in need of a Savior. And that's the information that we're being given. That's, that's the intent of this. So with those frameworks in mind, let's go ahead and read Genesis 5, 1 through 6, 8. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them. And he blessed them and named them man when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered his, a son in his own likeness, after his own image, and named him Seth. The days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years. 
and he had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. When Seth had lived 105 years, he fathered Enosh. Seth lived after he fathered Enosh 807 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. When Enosh had lived 90 years, he fathered Kenan. Enosh lived after he fathered Kenan 850 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enosh were 905 years, and he died. When Kenan had lived 70 years, he fathered Mahalalel. Kenan lived after he fathered Mahalalel 840 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Kenan were 910 years, and he died. When Mahalalel had lived 65 years, he fathered Jared. Mahalalel lived after he fathered Jared 830 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Mahalalel were 895 years, and he died. And we were glad because we could stop saying Mahalalel. (laughs) When Jared had lived 162 years, he fathered Enoch. Jared lived after he fathered Enoch 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Jared were 962 years, and he died. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. When Methuselah had lived 187 years, he fathered Lamech. Methuselah lived after he fathered Lamech 782 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Methuselah were 969 years, and he died. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Lamech lived after he fathered Noah 595 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Lamech were 777 years, and he died. After Noah was 500 years old, Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and the daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be a hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great on the earth, that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals, creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. It's very helpful for us as we look at this passage that really does neatly divide up into, into five sections that give us a framework, again, for what God wants us to see in his word. Now we're going to answer some of these questions as we go along that are probably bugging some of you. Um, but as we go through this, uh, let's not lose sight 
of the overarching picture, creation, fall, redemption, of the two seeds, the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And understand that God is trying to say something, not only to the people who are wandering in the desert for whom Moses wrote these words down, but God is trying to say something to us today. First of all, you're going to see in verses 1 and 2 the reminder of the blessing. The reminder of the blessing. The words that are used here in verses 1 and 2 take us back to Genesis 1 and 2. In fact, they specifically take us back to Genesis 1, 26 through 30, which is the cultural mandate. In Genesis 1, 26 through 30, God tells Adam and Eve two things. It says that God, verse 26, then God said, let us make man in our image and in our likeness. Okay, that's the first thing. He's an he's a image bearer. We all are image bearers, men and women. And it's referred to here in chapter 1, reminding them again, you are image bearers. That was your intent. And then God says, Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock, over all the earth, over everything that creeps on the earth. And God said to him, verse 28, Be fruitful and fill the earth, subdue it, and have dominion over all the fish of the sea, birds of the heaven, and everything that moves on the earth. And so it was God's intention, I'm going to create image bearers. And then I'm going to bless them by letting them create image bearers. And I'm going to bless them by creating image bearers that then fill out my creation. So that it's not just Adam and Eve who are image bearers and they're relating to God. But I'm actually going to create a community. I'm actually going to create a society, families of image bearers. Who then by nature, because they're image bearers and if they hadn't sinned, if there hadn't been a fall, will worship me. And that is going to be the great blessing that God has. I've, I've created this garden. I've created this earth. I've created everything exactly how it should be. I've given the crown of creation in these image bearers. They are going to be blessed. They're going to be blessed by filling out the earth. They are going to participate with me in creating image bearers, creating worshipers. And they are going to get to enjoy the fellowship that exists with an entire world, an entire garden filled out with image bearers. That is the blessing. That is the mandate that we've all been given. Now that mandate has not been lost. It's just been diff- more difficult. Now we, now we have to be remade, reborn into Christ in order to move back into the cultural mandate. But that cultural mandate is something that was given to us as a blessing by God. And he reminds uh, the readers at the beginning of this chapter, before he goes into the generations of Adam, hey, this was the blessing. This is what was supposed to happen. And then you see in verses 3 through 32, the result of God's goodness. So he's promised this blessing. Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Create image bearers. And now you're seeing the result of that goodness. In fact, you're also not only seeing that God is answering that blessing, but he's also answering Genesis 3.15. Because you remember, remember God said in the midst of their sin to Adam and Eve, listen, Eve... It is, it is out of you that I'm going to bring redemption. And so she was holding Cain, thinking Cain is going to be the redeemer. Instead, she was holding a murderer. And then after Cain kills Abel, she's thinking, I have a murderer and a dead son. How is God going to answer the promise? And at the end of chapter 4, God gives her Seth. And now Seth is going to be the answer, part of that promise. So God's goodness now is played out in these generations. And you're seeing 
what's called the Sethite line. So before in chapter 4, we had the Cainite line. You saw the generations of Cain. And now you have the Sethite line. And they really are different. So the Enoch, the Enoch in the Cainite line is clearly not the same Enoch in the Sethite line. Okay, They're not, they don't overlap. The Lamech in the Cainite line is not the Lamech in the Sethite line. They just, I guess those are really common names. <laughs> um, you know, it's kind of like John and Jim, Enoch and Lamech. All right? But there's two different lines, and this line is the line of God's blessing. God is filling out his creation. God is reminding the readers of Genesis, and he's reminding us today, that God is, God's grace and blessing is spreading even as the corruption is spreading. So as the corruption spreads, God doesn't stop working. His grace and mercy are spreading as well. And, and, and these generations, and, and even the grace, I don't know if you've thought about this, you're thinking, gosh, why did we read, we went through all that. Why didn't Todd just read a few of them, skip down to Enoch, read that one, jump down to chapter 6, we get it. This guy lived this many years, he had this many kids, or this kid, and then he lived this many more years, and then they added it up, and they did it, and he died. You know, see, why, did, why, are that, why is that like that? I mean, none of us probably are thinking, yeah, you know, Genesis, Genesis 5, that's like my life chapter. I get all my memorization scripture from Genesis 5. That's, that's the place where I'd like to sink deep. None of us are thinking that. In fact, many of us, some of you are like generation freaks and you like this stuff. But most of us look at this and go, yeah, I would never have written this. Why? Why was this written? Because God is a personal God. Names matter. We'll see more and more that God's intention to have a personal relationship and intimacy. These, these are patriarchs. These names matter to God. People matter to God. Not just societies. Not just the world. But we do have a question here before we leave this point that we have to answer. What, what's with these lifespans? What's with these, these huge lifespans? And some of you who are numbers guys might have added up the numbers and you're like, how many years are we talking about here and these numbers don't add up and who overlaps with who? How does this all work out? And it seems like maybe there's some gaps and you're trying to figure out how the, how the you know, are, is we have everybody here? Well, let's take those two things for a second. What about the, what about the, uh, the lifespans? What's this with these guys living 800, 900 years and having children at age 500? What's going on here? Really two thoughts uh, that theologians have. The first thought, and I really think there's only one that actually, that actually is, is um, responsible to Scripture. Meaning if you look at the Hebrew language and you look at how these things are used in other places, there's really, there's really one, one that makes sense with Scripture. The other one is just an attempt to try to meld Scripture with what our common sense sometimes feel. One, one thought, one uh, school of thought, is that what you have here is kind of their family lines. So, so Enosh, you know, lived, um, what does it say? Or, uh, you know, Adam lived 930 years. Enosh lived 870 years. And what it's saying is Enosh's family line. So Enosh didn't live 807 years. It's just that, that that's kind of how long his family kind of developed. That's his, that's his legacy and he had sons. And, and the total of all that was 870 years. The problem with that is the Hebrew doesn't read like that. 
And the way these things are used in other places, it's, there's nothing, it doesn't look symbolic, and that's not the way genealogies were done. So it, it, it's really hard to make that happen. The, the other school of thought is just, hey, this is, these are actual numbers. And that would fit with the Hebrew uh, in Scripture. So then what does that mean? How, does, how do they live 900 years? Well, then they would say this. Hey, it, we're just so close to Eden. We're so close to the garden. We're living in the shadow of Eden here in Genesis 5. And the effects of mortality, or the effects of sin on mortality, have not taken their full effect yet. We'll see in, in Genesis 6 that God connects sin with mortality. He says man's life is going to span is going to be 120 years. Kind of like saying that's going to be about the limit. But prior to that, in the shadow of Eden, the full effect of sin has not taken place. And so, and this is a great reminder for us, we were not created to die. God's image bearers were not created to die. You were not created to die. Death is a result of the fall. You were created as eternal beings. That's why in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 11, the writer of Ecclesiastes says, God has set eternity in the heart of man. And then goes on to talk about how nothing on this earth can satisfy us. Because we weren't meant to be satisfied on this earth. We're eternal beings. Or as C.S. Lewis put it, um, you were, you were, uh, you, you'll never find contentment in anything that is temporal. You'll never find contentment in anything that is earthly. And the only answer for that, C.S. Lewis says, is that you must have been made for something else. You must have been made for something beyond this world. And of course, we experience that, don't we? As our opportunities uh, arise for us to seek contentment in earthly things, we realize more and more that those things ultimately can't fill us. It's, God has set eternity in our hearts. The, the cavity that exists in us is an eternal cavity, and nothing in this life can fill that up to contentment because you were created for something more. And so here's just a reminder of this in Genesis 5. That here, just so close to, to Eden, in the shadow of Eden, lifespans are just much, much greater. It also is really helpful for filling out the earth, right? <laughs> I mean, it's, you know, you, if you're going to fill out the earth, you're probably going to need to have kids at age 500. You know, you're going to need to keep having kids. Lots of kids. If we're going to get to a population that actually creates societies and cities, then uh, you're, you're going to have to, it's going to have to be more than two and a half kids. You're going to have to have, you know, 2,000 kids. You're going to have to keep, keep going at this. So it's helpful for filling that out. That's what makes sense here as you look and read the Scripture and understand this result of God's goodness. But notice that there's a phrase there that keeps repeating over and over and over again. Over and over and over again in verses 3 through 32, it says this, And he died. So even with these lifespans, there was still death. Even Methuselah, who lived 969 years, he still died. The results of sin were still taking effect. There still was needed something. 
Because these who were not created to die were dying. And there was nothing they could do, even as godly men, to stop it. So there had to be an answer. And graciously, even in this text, God reminds us or reassures us of that promise. So, point number three. The reassurance of the promise. Verses 21 through 24. Now some of you are going, wait a second, Ty. We've already gotten to verse 32. Why are we going back? Why did you? Yeah, my, my assistant, Suzanne, when she was writing up the notes, she called me and she said, hey, do you, uh, did you mean to do this? Are the, are the notations wrong? You, you've had one point two takes us to verse 32. And then point three to, puts us back up in the middle. I'm like, no, that's exactly what I want because that's exactly what hits us in this text. You're reading along, reading along, reading along. And there's this Enoch guy. And twice it says that Enoch Walk with God. There's something different about Enoch. It's fascinating. The New Testament writers actually write about Enoch. If you go to Hebrews chapter 11, in fact, let's go to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11, not only write write about Abel, and we talked about that um, last week in Hebrews chapter 11 and Hebrews chapter 12, but he also writes about Enoch and helps us understand this guy a little bit more. It says... Hebrews chapter 11, verse 5. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that God exists and that he rewards those who would seek him. So speaking about Enoch... The writer of Hebrews says it was by faith in God, believing God and believing in God's justice, believing in God's mercy, believing in God's promise that Enoch walked with God. What an astounding thing to say about a man. He walked with God. But don't be too astounded because on this side of the cross, you and I get that same privilege. You and I get the same privilege of walking with God and walking in that righteousness with Him. The writer of Jude, some of you are like, Jude, what are you talking about? Yeah, this is a book that's like right before Revelation and uh, it's one chapter long (laughs) and uh, you probably haven't read it in a while. Um, But in Jude, of all places, it talks about Enoch. It talks about the way of Cain, that people are going the way of Cain. And that they need to hear the message of Enoch. And the message of Enoch that's talked about in verses 10 through 24 of Jude is a message of repentance. It says that Enoch proclaimed God's judgment and called people to repentance. And so Enoch was not only a man who who walked in obedience with the Lord, but he was also a man who was proclaiming God's truth. He was a man who, who wanted to tell his neighbors, listen, You need to respond to God. You need to understand sin and and certainly that there was an opportunity for repentance. And in Jude, it talks about uh, Enoch being seventh from Seth. We can't lose sight of the fact that Moses is very intentional as he writes. Very intentional. And when they did these genealogies, They didn't always include every single person. So, uh, you know, my my father's name is David. And my son over here is Zach. 
And if you did a genealogy, all of us would go, you got to go, you know, David fathered Todd, and Todd fathered Zach, and it needs to go like that. But if you look at the genealogies of Scripture, it doesn't always look like that. Sometimes it just goes, and David fathered Zach. You're like, what's that all about? Well, because the point of genealogies was to get from the first one, Seth, to the last one, Noah. And they just wanted to show the line. You see that in, in the genealogies of Christ as well. If you look over them, you're like, wait a second, they skipped a couple. Yeah, that's because they just wanted you to understand the flow of this. You, the, the, the important people were listed in that. So Moses is very intentional about, about the genealogy in uh, chapter 4 and chapter 5. There in the midst of the Sethite line, Enoch is number 7. Who's number 7 in the Canaanite line? Lamech. And so you see again the contrast there. The line of Lamech, the line of the Canaanites, was absolute rebellion against God. The line of the Sethites was a legacy of men that walked with God. And Enoch was going to be that example. And then finally, before we leave this, here's another great place where we see God's intent to walk personally and intimately with his image bearers. Sometimes we look at the Old Testament and we think, yeah, the Old Testament is, is, I mean, we know it's about grace, but it seems like it's about law. It seems like it's about rules. It seems like, yeah, the, the, God of the, Old, the way God was acting in the Old Testament, the, he was just trying to make sure we understood all the rules and then we would understand we can't live up to them. And then, and then the way God acted in the New Testament is, is full of mercy and grace. And, and we know that's not true, but, it, but sometimes it feels like that. I think sometimes it feels like that because we're not really reading and studying the text. Clearly here, in the midst of this genealogy, God is not only reminding us of the promise, reassuring us of the promise, but he's also reassuring us that his intent is not a relationship that's a contractual relationship. Hey, you obey me, do these things, and I'll be your God. No, it's that he would walk with us. Just like he walked with Adam and Eve in the garden. And he wants to know us personally and intimately. And here is that reassurance of it. Well, now this takes us to chapter 6. And chapter 6 is disturbing for a lot of reasons. We've seen the generations of God's goodness. We've seen uh, it, it, it exemplified in Enoch who walked with God. But then we move into some pretty serious depravity. Before we get into the whole reason of why God is sorry, let's go ahead and tackle this sons of God thing, right? Because we want to know, what in the world does it mean when it says, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took them as their wives? What is being said here? Well, really, when you study it, there's three, three schools of thought that come out here. And the first one was really universally held up to the second century. So up to the second century, any, any, anyone thought this. When it says sons of God, it's referring to angels. You say, what? what? Why is that referring to like the angels took human women and had sex with them? And you're like, what is going on with that? Why do they think that? Well, because the term sons of God, this way it was written in Hebrew, is used in three other places, and all three of them occur in the book of Job, 
And all three of them are specifically referring to angels. So if you just look at the text and understand the Hebrew lexicon, it seems like that's what's being said here because that's the way it was said over here. Now the weakness of that is it's only in three places and it's only in one book and the book is pretty ancient, the book of Job. So it, it, it's, uh, it's on thin ice, but that's, that's, when you just look at the language, that seems to be the language. We'll come back to that. And then in, uh, in the second century and beyond, two other lines of thought began to develop when it came to the term sons of God. One of those was that this was referring to the Sethite line, sons of God, and that the daughters of man was referring to the Cainite line, meaning sons of God was describing those who were obedient to God, who were in fellowship with God, who were walking with God, that those men were taking basically pagan women and marrying them. And so the, the, the point of that was like sons of God can't mean angels. And, when you're, and we're talking here about family lines. And clearly in chapter 4 it's talked about the Canaanite line. In chapter 5 it's talked about the Sethite line. So the framework of what's being done. And when you look at the, the Toledots, the ten Toledots of, the Gen, of Genesis, that seems to make the most sense in the framework. And it gets us away from angels sleeping with, uh, with humans. So that was one. St. Augustine, in, in his uh, great work, The City of God, he, he brings this forth, and that's really where it took off. The third thought, third line of thinking, this is really mostly Jewish scholars after the second century, would say, no, this is referring to kings and rulers in that kind of prehistoric time or pre-written history time, this ancient time. And the ancient time... If you were the ruler of a city or the ruler of a settlement, um, you were thought of as one representing God to, uh, to the people that you ruled over. So that you were kind of the, the representative of God. That you represented the deity. And of course that evolved finally when we see in Egypt that you actually think the rulers are deities. And so this thought was that these rulers who were thought of as representing the deity so therefore sons of God, what they were doing was actually this ancient practice of tyranny that you can read about in other uh, outside sources. Ancient practice of tyranny where these rulers, so the people they ruled over, practiced the right of first night. Meaning that when a husband and wife were being married in their kingdom, this tyrannical ruler would say, well no, you can't get married I will sleep with her the first night because I'm the ruler. And then you can have her as your wife. And of course, that's a, a, a disgusting, abusive, uh, gross uh, abuse of power to go ahead and do that. So these Jewish people thought, or Jewish scholars thought, well, that's what's taking place here. So you have the angels. And angels seem to have some connection when you read Jude and you read 1 Peter. It sounds like they're talking about some angels there that, that, that crossed boundaries that didn't do what they were supposed to do. And you're, but it doesn't specifically refer to Genesis 6, but it seemed like it might. And so those are the three thoughts, three trains of thought. Which one? Which one is it? Which one is it, Todd? I don't know. If Dr. DeWitt didn't know, I certainly am not going to know. And I had a discussion 
with Barton and uh, Mary Wilson. Mary Wilson teaches the women on uh, Wednesday night. They're going through Genesis. Um, that's Sandy's daughter, if you don't know that yet. Not only is she Sandy's daughter, but she happens to be Dr. Mary Wilson. Um, and her doctorate is in Old Testament. And we're not talking about a THD, a doctor of theology. She has a PhD. She has the serious one. And she is legitimately an Old Testament scholar. So we got into a little discussion. She said debate. I don't think we were debating. We got in a little discussion about these different views. And Dr. Mary Wilson said, oh, I'm sure it's not angels. I, would, I categorically reject the angels things. She goes, I really, I, I'm, I'm, I think it's this, the, the Sethite line. Barton thinks it's the, the rulers. I did say to Mary, I said, Mary, uh, I wish the scholars that I read were as sure about their uh, conclusions as you are. <laughs> I said, you are Sandy Wilson's daughter. Um, <laughs> and uh, she laughed and she said, whatever, Todd. Uh, here's, here's the deal. We don't know. We're not sure exactly what sons of God means. That's okay. What does Moses need us to know? What he needs us to know is that there was a serious transgression taking place. What he needs us to understand is that the depravity had gone from individuals to families in chapter 4 and now to entire societies. That's what Moses needs us to understand. There was something bizarre and disturbing in the rebellion and transgression against God that's taking place. Well, what is the Nephilim? What's that all about? and, And it's also referred to referred to in Numbers chapter 11 when the spies go into the land at the, in the promised land and they spy out the land, they come back and all but Caleb and Joshua say, we can't go in there. Caleb and Joshua's like, we got to go in there. We got it. We can do this. God is with us. The rest of the spies say, no, 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 no. Not going in there. And then they say this, verse 33, the giants live there, the sons of Anak, the Nephilim. Okay, wait a second. So that's the giants. There's something bizarre about these. What does this mean? It means this. Formidable warriors who must have been huge in stature. So maybe they were, you know, seven feet tall, which to a Near Eastern man back in that time would have been a giant. Of course, to most of us, it's a giant. Um, One of my favorite moments with my good friend, who happens to be close to seven feet tall. Maybe you saw this. We actually made it on ESPN. I was uh, sitting with Pat Nelson, uh, who's close to seven feet tall. We were at a Grizzlies game. We were close down front, and we went ahead playing the Clippers in the playoffs, and we instinctively went to hug each other, and I buried my, my face right into uh, Pat Nelson's belly. And right there, on, right there on ESPN, I was, you know, hugging a giant. And... Uh, and I got screenshots of that sent to me for the rest of the night. Um, and we promised not to ever hug each other. So, formidable men who were serious warriors are being talked about here. Just as a side note, remember later when Caleb and Joshua go back to take the promised land in Joshua, the book of Joshua. Remember, Caleb's a war hero. Caleb has survived the 40 years in the desert, the 40 years when this book is being written first five books of the Old Testament. And now they're at the edge of the promised land. They go back in. Everyone else who voted, remember they voted not to go in, not a good thing to do when God says go in, don't take a vote, just go in. They voted, decided no, we're not going to take the promised land. God sent them back out to the wilderness. 
And every man who voted, every man over 40, died. And now they're back at the edge of the promised land. And Caleb's 80 years old. And they say to Caleb, hey, listen, we go into the promised land. We've got some nice, we've got some nice area for you. It's right down by the river. It's right in nice lake property. You can retire. You're a war hero. You deserve it. We don't want you to be too stressed as we go in to take the land. Remember what Caleb says? He says, uh-uh, uh-uh. God told me I could have that hill country where the, where the giants live, where the formidable warriors live. And then he says, at 80 years old, he said, hey, I'm just as strong today as I was 40 years ago. So you give me that hill country because God promised it to me. A great reminder for all of us that whatever your age God has work for you to do. <laughs> God has promises for you to participate in uh, as you take that hill country. So the Nephilim here, they're just formidable men. There's not, there's not anything mysterious here. Um, but what is clear is that the depravity is increasing from individuals to families to societies. So we get to the point in verse 5 where it says very disturbingly these words. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Wow, that's powerful. Tabiti Anuebli is a pastor up in uh, Washington, D.C., great, phenomenal preacher, reformed preacher up there. He says this in regards to Genesis 6. He says, our current cultural problem is that we think our problems are outside of us and our solutions are inside of us. That our problems are outside of us, people's words, people's cruelty, that our problems are outside of us and the solutions are inside of us. That what we need to do to really find our identity is to look inside us. That's what the world says. But the Bible says, no, no, no. Here in verse 5, our problem is inside us. Our problem is our broken heart, and the only solution is outside of us, and that's a Savior. The only thing you and I will ever find in identity and looking inside of us is we will get lost. We will get absolutely lost. The only way we really know who we are, the only way we really understand our identity, the only way we really understand love is not to look inside of us, but it is to look to our Savior. Because as it says here in verse 5, our hearts are dark and left on their own, we could end up in a place where every intention of our hearts is only evil continually. We need a Savior. And it says that the Lord was sorry. Twice it says the Lord was sorry. Another passage that says the Lord had regret. What's that about? What's, what, how can God be sorry? How can, why is the Bible using language like that, that God regrets like he made something but he's omniscient and he's all-knowing uh, he's he's uh, omniscient and he can see the future how would he regret or in other places it seems like it says God changes his mind and repents what's that about how can that happen how does that work well there's three thoughts that have to do with that one of them let me just tell you what it's not um, this is not open theism there's this there's this new well new in the last 10 years this new theological thought called open theism that says this, that God loving us so much, loving his creation so much 
that God has purposely restricted his knowledge and restricted his, his, for, his working in the future and his understanding of, of, of sovereignty. He's restricted his sovereignty in such a way that he's allowing us to affect the way things go. He's allowing us to change his mind. That's how much he loves us. He's actually restricting his sovereignty, restricting his foreknowledge, open theism. And that's creeping into a lot of good conservative churches. And it's completely inconsistent with Scripture. So this is not open theism. This isn't that. It's probably two things, though. One is what we call an anthropomorphism. You've heard me say this before. An anthropomorphism is a place in Scripture where they give human terms to God so that we as weak, small-minded humans can understand what's being said. So in Isaiah, it says that the Lord has bared his holy arm, meaning he's rolled up his sleeve, flexed his bicep. The Lord has bared his holy arm so that all people, all nations may see the salvation of our God. Now why does God have an arm? No, God doesn't have an arm. Why does it say that? It's saying that because we in our finite minds can understand that. We can get our heads around that. I get what that's saying. God is flexing to show the nations his salvation. Here, we're being given anthropomorphic words to help us understand the heart of God. And you say, well, how does that fit with sovereignty? We don't know because our minds can't get around it. But we're trying to, and, and also the word, the Hebrew word that's used here is extremely difficult to translate. In fact, in our English Bibles, it's translated 10 different ways. But the core of this word has to do with justice. And so God is sorry because the balance, things seem to have gotten completely out of balance. The depravity of man has run in such a great measure that it's like completely out of balance with the promise. I mean, disturbingly so. Disturbingly so that, so that God is grieved to the heart, that he is, he is in, in human terms, in anthropomorphic terms, that he is overwhelmed with grief and saying, we, the balance is so bad, we just have to start over. That's how great the depravity was. But in the midst of that, in the midst of that, we see finally in one verse, verse 8, a ray of hope. A ray of hope. Creation, fall, redemption. God reminds us the story's not done being written yet. And he says here, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Brothers, we only have a few minutes before we have to get out of here, but I don't want you to miss this. This conjunction that you see here in Genesis 6 you're going to find in many other places with that same force where you see the depravity of our hearts, the depravity of, of our families, the depravity of society, and, and, and a hopelessness, and a seeming hopelessness, and yet you're going to see, but God, but God. One of my favorite places in all of Scripture is in Genesis chapter 3. Excuse me, Genesis chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. We won't go there because we're running short of time. Then in Romans chapters 1, 2, and 3, Paul is just pounding us with an understanding of how wicked we are. 
He starts with the pagan man in chapter 1. He says, you need to understand. Rebellion against God, and they deserve God's wrath. And God is handing them over to their desires. And I mean, Paul just pounds us. And then you remember in chapter 2, some people probably say, well, I'm not a pagan. I, got, I have morals. And beginning in chapter 2, Paul just pounds you. Your morals, you can't even, you have standards. You can't even go a day living up to your own standards, let alone God's standards. The standards you create for yourself, you fail those. And you deserve the wrath of God. I mean, just, it's, it's the beat down. And you say, well, I'm, I'm more than a moral man. I'm a religious man. Oh, you're a religious man, Paul says? And he goes after it again. Just pound to the conclusion, in the beginning of chapter 3, he quotes a psalm and he says, no one is good, no, not one. Everyone is going after their own evil. It's like almost exactly verse 5 of Genesis 6. And it just seems despairing. And then in verse 21 of Romans 3, it says this, but now a righteousness from God has been revealed. And at that point, Romans explodes into the gospel. I want us to remember, especially as we walk out of here today, that is what God is to you, to me, brothers. Our depravity, our hopelessness, the mess we've created, just like here in Genesis 6, the mess we've created, but... Noah found favor, but there is a ray of, but God is going to keep the promise. Romans 3, there's no one that does good, but a righteousness from God. Not a righteousness that's required of you, but a righteousness that is God's that he gives to you. And the gospel explodes. But right here in verse 8, chapter 6, the sixth chapter of the Bible, God is saying, I'm always going to bring that promise. I'm always going to work salvation. What I said in Genesis 3.15, I will complete, and you're going to see it through all human history. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that even in these difficult chapters, we can understand the main thing, and the main thing that you want us to know is that we are broken and helpless, but, but, you have provided for us a salvation. Lord, this world, this city, our city is broken and suffering. And it's a result of our own sin, our own generational sin. But you, but you have provided salvation. You have provided restoration, redemption. Oh, Heavenly Father, may we as as your sons live out that reality and legacy in this city. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.